That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Earlier this month, the Cyberspace Administration of China published a draft, now in its public comment phase, of regulations that would govern generative AI in China. Generative AI is, as I trust most listeners to this show are by now well aware, is, well, I'll, I'll let a generative AI large language model tell you. Uh, so I asked for a succinct definition from ChatGPT version 4, and here's what it says. Generative AI is a subset of artificial intelligence that focuses on creating new content or data by learning patterns from existing data. It employs algorithms, such as deep learning models, to generate outputs in the form of text, images, audio, or other data types, often mimicking human-like creativity and decision-making capabilities. So, think ChatGPT, obviously. Um, Google's Bard, Bing's Chat, things like Dolly and Stable Diffusion, which create images less familiar, but uh, to me equally impressive, are AI music generators, uh, like the one I used to create this rather unimpressive background music you're hearing right now, which I gave the very uh, uncreative name Generative AI BG. Okay. Anyway, today, to talk about the new rules on generative AI from the CAC, I am joined by Jeremy Dom of the Yale China Center, who published a translation of the new draft regulations on his incredibly useful website, China Law Translate. Jeremy Dom, welcome back to Seneca. And I need to ask, did you use ChatGPT at all in the translation of the regulations? Uh, I did not. I have played around with it in the past, though. Okay, good, good, good. All right. Also joining for the first time of what I hope will be many appearances on Seneca is Kendra Schaefer, who is a partner at the Beijing-based strategic advisory consultancy Trivium, where she's the resident tech person. She is someone whose perspectives on China's tech scene I found to be immensely valuable. Kendra joins us from Portland, Oregon, and welcome to Seneca, Kendra. Hi, Kaiser. Happy to be here. Yeah, well, we're very, very happy to have you, uh, both of you. And I, I know the two of you know each other and have worked together, so I look forward to this conversation. Before we go on, though, I want to give a big shout out to the DigiChina team at Stanford, headed up by my good friend Graham Webster, which also did a translation of the new draft regulations. And they also have a kind of roundtable discussion. It was called a DigiChina forum, which I highly recommend, uh, which is all about the, the draft regulations. Really smart folks like Helen Toner, uh, who's at CSET, who's actually on the board of OpenAI, uh, a go-to lawyer in Beijing at Covington Burling named Luo Yen, who I've had the pleasure of meeting, who's brilliant. Rohir Kramers, uh, Matt Sheehan over at Carnegie. Anyway, you, you get an idea. Definitely check it out. Uh, don't know whether you got a peek at that, you guys, but uh, 
it came out after we had already scheduled this recording session anyway. Some of the observations are very interesting. Maybe we can talk about that. And, and listeners, you might want to check that out before listening to the conversation. And also, of course, read the draft regulation in translation by Jeremy. You might also want to check out a piece by Paul Triolo on the China Project's website. It's called ChatGPT and China, How to Think About Large Language Models and the Generative AI Race. And Paul also offers some of the comments uh, in that DigiChina forum. So, you guys, okay, this draft is clearly in dialogue, as they say, with other important pieces of legislation, and particularly with the Personal Information Privacy Law and with the 2022 Regulation on Recommendation Algorithms, uh, with its you know, registry of recommendation algorithms. Uh, but, Jeremy, as you pointed out in your excellent overview of the regs, its direct ancestor is a set of regulations called Provisions on the Administration of Deep Synthesis Internet Information Services, uh, which you translated back in March. Now, this hasn't gotten all that much attention, in part because I think people don't immediately know what CAC means by deep synthesis. Uh, looking at that definition, which you helpfully provided in the addendum to those regulations, it's translated there. I'm not sure that there isn't much that doesn't overlap with generative AI. What is the difference between deep synthesis internet services and, and generative AI? I don't think there is much of a difference from the way that they're defined. Hmm. You could argue for a little bit about the scope of each of them in that the earlier regs are referring only to services provided through the internet and the generative AI models is maybe a subset of those deep synthesis, but they're both about artificial intelligence or computer generated content. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be media in any form. It can be text, images, voice, video, and you know, all of the above. So they're really going at the same thing. And it's kind of surprising in that sense that we had an update sort of to those rules so quickly after they took effect. Uh, and those earlier rules took effect in January this year. Yes. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the difference in focus of the two of, of sets of regs. You know, one maybe uh, more focused on IP violations and on deep fakery and things like that. And the, the other more on sort of content regulation. But Kendra, what did you make of the difference? Yeah, I had an aha moment when I was kind of looking at the at the new regulations. First of all, I just want to pull back a little bit for your listeners um, and outline the three regulations that we're talking about, right? Because mm -hmm, the spirit, mm -hmm. what was going on in China at the time that those regulations were released and what was going on in the policy conversation more broadly is incredibly important, right? The first major set of regulations on AI, uh, arguably speaking, but the first major set of regulations on AI was this, you know, you've talked about it before, these rules on recommendation engines, Right. right. And, and they took a really broad lens. You know, usually when people think of recommendation engines, we think of two things. We think of e-commerce recommendations. Right? right. And then you think of recommendations for ads or content on social media platforms. Right. That's what we think of. Sure. But those regulations took an actually broader view, looking at the core function of how the algorithm works. What I mean by that is they also included any kind of algorithm that for example, determined worker delivery schedules. Oh, wow. So when they said recommendation algorithms, what they were looking at was an algorithm that constantly takes, and this isn't exactly from the regulation text, but it's basically what they were tackling. Any algorithm that takes constantly updated data, right, from a large subset of users of some kind, whether that be delivery drivers, uh, you know, on a restaurant delivery platform like Meituan, whether that is ride-hailing drivers, whether that is people shopping on, you know, an e-commerce site, whether that or is... Or just people swiping up, up and down on, on Douyin. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So anything that's taking this constant feed of information from people using the platform, and then the machine makes a recommendation about that. The policy conversation at the time, right, was really focused on information cocoons, disinformation, companies that were abusing algorithms to infringe on workers' rights and labor rights, right? You know, delivery driver A makes a delivery and gets from point A to point B in, in 15 minutes by running a bunch of red lights. And now the second driver who makes that delivery is expected to do the same by the algorithm, right? Not enough rest right. time, all this kind of stuff, including also, you know, ad engines, what's allowed to be kind of distributed through content recommendations, all that kind of stuff. What's interesting and notable there is it's looking at the function of the algorithm. 
the function of the algorithm is what got regulated, right? Which is pretty mm. interesting. Then you move on to the second regulation that you know you just mentioned, which uh, is the second one that kind of came out that that uh, uh, surprised everyone, <laughs> which was a, a, a regulation focused on deep synthesis technologies. In common parlance, what they meant by that is deep fakes. Right. And the background to that regulation was that there was all of this concern that uh, the conversation was happening in the U.S. and Europe, but was also happening in China. What happens when machines start? I don't know, making videos of Xi Jinping singing the U.S. national anthem or something, right? Or, or you know, you've got news misinformation proliferating. You have revenge pornography proliferating, that kind of stuff. There was a big concern that users and viewers wouldn't know that content was generated by a machine, right? So they'd be tricked. And there was a concern it would cause social instability issues. Right. So that was the background of the deep synthesis regulation, right? Now, again, they they didn't just say no deep fake videos. They looked at the function of the algorithm, right? They looked at, they took a broader lens. They said any, you know, essentially any AI editing of content without human intervention, essentially, right? Video, audio, text, language. And they included chatbots in that bucket but the spirit of that regulation was not this right was not generative ai because that wasn't a thing yet really on anybody's radar you know that brings us to the present uh, iteration of this regulation suddenly chat gbt emerges it's a big deal and now there's concern or a question about where chat gpt does it fit under the deep fake regulation does it fit under it it clearly did but I think they wanted to underscore the fact that this also, you know, there were other considerations about ChatGPT, which we'll get into in a second, I'm sure, about the training data right. for generative AI that was not included in the in the deepfake regulation. So yeah, that's really yeah. the kind of background, right? But the takeaway is that what what's fascinating in China is that regulators are looking at algorithmic function which takes a broader lens than looking at the end application, like a video or a text or a chatbot, right? So it's pretty broad. So when I look at recent legislation that's come out, recent regulations that have come out governing different aspects of, of, of life in our, our you know, high-tech world, I think it's fair to say that not many other governments have been as on top of things, as, as focused on getting out regulations. And you look at PIPL, I mean, I don't know this myself, to be clear, but I've heard from smart people that, you know, it takes a lot from Europe's GDPR, but is in some ways actually more robust even in, in its protections, at least on paper. I am not aware of other, you know, deep synthesis laws or <laughs> regulations in other major markets or, for that matter, algorithm laws. Or, of course, this is certainly the first set of, of major nation regulations governing uh, generative AI. So what can we generally say when we step back and look at these steps that the regulators are taking? What, what can we generally say about, I mean, it doesn't seem like a clumsy, you know, ossified bureaucracy at all. CAC seems like it's fairly nimble and fairly on top of it. In some ways, they're, they're nimble, but that's because they're willing to walk some of it back. And they like to put out rules to get ahead of the problems that are coming forward. But they're always, in all of these regulations, dealing with essentially the same problems just as new tech applies to them. I find myself thinking back on the now much maligned quote from Bill Clinton back in the day, about trying to regulate the internet uh, being like trying to nail jello to a wall. Sure. And we often, people scoff and say, look, China's done so well with censorship, he really had that wrong. But no, I think he had it right. And what we see is China is constantly trying to nail that jello to the wall as the internet takes on new forms, new shapes. And, you know, we've seen a stream, not just with AI and algorithms, as Kendra laid out, but, you know, as live streaming became big, we saw things on that comment sections where people could interact more freely uh, on articles and publish non-news content, instant messengers, algorithms, AI, e-commerce. You know, we see separate rules put out on all of these as we see how they're going to lead to those core concerns of the government about content that can cause social instability, misinformation and more recently, protections of personal information and data security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, Jeremy, 
made a very strong point. And just to underscore that, two things to note. I'm sure many of your listeners already know this, but functionally speaking, China is a one-party system. What that basically means is that they're free to put out a regulation and then go back and revise it without having to argue with somebody every time that they go back and revise it, right? right. And that allows policy to go out the door quickly that is not done or that is very broad or that is in essence a statement of intent mm -hmm. with no strong mechanism in place yet for enforcing it. And then when you look at, for example, Europe or the United States, you know, it takes years to formulate this stuff and, and finalize it because once it's out the door, you know, executing on a revision is a very long and difficult process with lots of, you know, back and forth and, and debate. So, uh, you know, it's I, I always like to say that Chinese regulators like to fail fast and often, right? <laughs> they they act a little Whoa. bit like uh, like startups in the sense that they push something out. Oh, it's not working. Oh, we need this supporting regulation. OK, roll that out. OK, you know what? Make a revision. And so they do iterate on regulation very, very quickly. And, and, and I think that's, you know, what, what we're seeing here in terms of the speed. They don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I would just add that while uh, a lot of new law that comes out, especially in emerging areas, they try to leave space for that new industry to develop. Mm -hmm. And often it is aspirational with just a lot of uh, principles laid out. But for speech, this is an area that long before the internet was regulated. Sure. And there are very real consequences. And in addition to addressing training data and these new uh, draft AI regs, what they've done is that they've made it clear that the people who create the tools will be liable as the content producers. Yeah, we'll get into the whole issue of, of the content regulation of this in quite a bit of depth later on in the conversation. But so I don't want to sure. jump the gun here and talk about that just yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously one of the things. But I think what's striking is also that, as you say, the intention is not to stifle this in, in the cradle, right? They want, you know, within their strictures, obviously, to allow this industry to, to actually develop. And they, they think, I think, that in providing these guidelines earlier on, that they're they're allowing it to develop in a healthy manner, right? Yeah, and I was just going to, you know, pull out on that point and just take a kind of broader lens view of all of these algorithm regulations. And, you know, as Jeremy's been underscoring tech regulations more broadly, Internet regulations more broadly, almost all Chinese Internet policy tends to include what I what I call a little bit of sweet and a little bit of sour. Yeah. On the one hand, right, it almost universally requires new technologies to uphold socialist core values and not promote subversive ideas. It increases state control over the distribution of information and content on the internet, right? On the other hand, and so on the other hand, it also often includes strong and genuine consumer protections that in many cases go beyond what Western democracies have instituted. Right. On paper right now, Chinese consumers and Chinese Internet users have far more privacy protections than than U.S. users, frankly. And, you know, I think what often tends to happen is that because there's a focus on, you know, censorship in these policies, and there absolutely is, the rest of it, right, gets brushed off and brushed aside as, oh, all of these privacy protections aren't genuine. They're not real. You know, the Chinese government doesn't care about privacy. I would actually argue that's not the case at all. I would argue that the conception of privacy as implemented is simply different, right? When you're looking at, at EU privacy policies, privacy includes the law stands between me and my data and the government, marketers, hackers, and you know, bad actors, right? right? When you look at Chinese privacy policy, it's the government and I protect my data from hackers, <laughs> marketers, and companies, right? And so as you look at it from that lens, or the government's kind of excused itself from the privacy conversation to a certain <laughs> degree, that's a wild oversimplification. But to a certain degree, in that case, the government has every incentive to enforce consumer privacy protections for Chinese consumers with regards to companies, right? So uh, I think it's important to, to think of those regulations with that in mind. Yeah, yeah. Kendra, you have a way uh, often of, of, of bringing that kind of clarity to things. I remember uh, the, the data localization laws, for example, um, uh, uh, the sort of conventional wisdom was, you know, they're just sort of trying to, to uh, 
to, you know, to lock down user data in, in, in China. But, you know, your take was that they want to do this so because they believe that this is an essential step to building a market for data. Uh, yeah. I thought that was that was a really interesting take and correct. Let me stay with you for a second here and, and ask you, uh, you know, let's let's get a sense for where generative AI is in China at the moment. Um, there's been a ton of buzz. Every company talking about, you know, what it's doing in this space. I mean, you know, Wang Xin's partner, the guy who co-founded Meituan, he has a new startup in this space and it's raised a ton of money. Uh, Baidu yeah. launched its Ernie bot. Um, Sense Times got something. iFly Tech, obviously, is a big player in this. ByteDance yeah. has announced a big initiative. Uh, they're already very, very big in AI. Uh, they're trying to sort of uh, help other companies. I, I, I guess they're... I, I, Reddit's I've seen a piece about their whole approach, but very interesting. I, I've actually lost count now of how many announcements that I've seen. <laughs> but how far along are they? I mean, because I've seen a lot of these appear to fall quite flat on their face. Like, you know, the Baidu launch was really widely criticized. So how far along are they and what's their focus? Are they, are they also focused primarily on text, you know, large language models? Or have there been, you know, image companies that I haven't, yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty hard. It's obviously pretty hard to generalize. But if I had to generalize, I would say it's not just companies, right? It's also research institutions are jumping yeah, on yeah, this, yeah. this boat. I don't know. I say if you might have heard about Tsinghua kind of unveiled another large language model that was supposed to, you know, be on par with with chat GPT. Right. They called it GLM 130B or something like that. And uh, about a month ago, uh, researchers, I believe it was at Fudan University, put out a model as well. All of these models are in their infancy and have essentially, it's almost impossible, at least from the outside, to separate fact from hype. For right. example, the model, one of the first models that was China built that emerged after ChatGPT3 was, uh, was released was out of Fudan University. And State Media picked up this article that said China's got its own ChatGPT and it flew around the internet. And everyone was real excited about it, prompting the researchers to release a, a follow-up that essentially said, everyone needs to calm down. We're a tiny team, right? With no resources to provide, you know, data processing for this commercially. This is 70% accurate. You know, we, we would rank this as maybe 70% of the way done and it is just an experiment. Sorry, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And so... There's been, you know, and same thing, right? There's been a lot of hype around ErnieBot. It's gotten a lot of criticism domestically. There's been a ton of conversation around for all these different companies and, and how far along they are. It's very difficult to get access to those models. Right. Uh, there are long waiting lists for testing them out. And we're on it. We're on the waiting list for ErnieBot, but we you know, still haven't, still haven't gotten access ourselves. So ultimately, I think... You know, there's a ton of hype in the industry right now. And I think these regulations that we're about to really dig into are going to throw, have kind of thrown a huge wrench in there. There was also some rumors, for example, that regulators, this is a rumor, the regulators had come to Alibaba and said, don't go releasing a major chat GPT clone without talking to us. Uh. Right? This is before this regulation came out. So I think from the picture I've gotten from the domestic conversation, what has happened is that ChatGPT kicked off a furor in the tech community. Entrepreneurs got real excited about putting something together. Regulators, including the Minister of Science and Technology, said, whoa, ho, ho, there are security risks here. Yeah. We haven't fully assessed them. We don't have any you know, clear regulations in place on this, and we haven't given any guidance. Everyone needs to chill. And then the guidance that has come out, as we'll discuss in a minute, I'm sure, has seemed to throw a big wrench in the ability of these companies to to basically train large models, right? Right. So that's kind of where we're at overall. I would just add a, a single point, which is that I think the release of ChatGPT really was a ground-shaking moment in China. Yeah. From everyone I've spoken to who works in even adjacent areas, there had been this assumption that China was sort of way ahead in AI. I don't know if a head is even a term that makes sense in talking about AI. I don't like the idea of a race. Right. But but uh, there was an assumption that China's tech was the more advanced and ChatGPT sort of wowed people. Yeah. Uh, people weren't ready for that. And I think that even, you know, within the US and even the pe people responsible for ChatGPT are, are feeling <laughs> that. 
that it's progressing at at, a, at an incredibly rapid rate. You know, I, it is self-teaching and, and is improving really fast. And I think that this caused a, a, a big shift of priorities in terms of research and development in China as well as here. Absolutely. I think everybody's got the tiger by the tail. Yeah. Um, and it's very clear that, you know, uh, uh, this really did. I mean, Jeremy couldn't be more correct. I mean, our team spends all day, every day digging through the China regulatory and media documents in space. And as soon as ChatGPT was released, no one was talking about anything else. I mean, yeah. it was a real watershed moment. So the things they were talking about, obviously, like you said, there were security concerns and there were concerns immediately of co about consonants with China's core socialist values. But there were a whole bunch of other concerns that overlap perfectly with the same things that are being raised in the United States. Absolutely. About ethics, about about uh, bias, about um, you know, potentially harmful co consequences. You know, even from, from the, the basic things like, you know, using ChatGPT or, you know, large language models to cheat on exams. Um, you know, all the way down the, the line, right? Uh, so it's it's the ethical concerns. It's interesting that, that there's some convergence around there. Um, let's. I, I wanted to kind of finish off this, this preliminary batch of questions by talking about where we are in the United States in terms of, of uh, regulation. I mean, I haven't seen serious efforts yet to write a, a, a set of rules. I mean, but the rules do seem to be coming out of companies themselves. It's interesting how they have converged around a set of things. So like these days, if you're on ChatGPT4, it's pretty hard to get it to 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 say terrible racist or misogynistic or sexist things now, right? I mean, it's they, they seem to have self-imposed some order. Uh, can you talk about that? What's the federal government doing and uh, what are the companies themselves doing? In the, in the U.S., our model for dealing with new tech and the various concerns that it raises, including personal privacy and the content generated by some of these new tools, has been to let the corporations have a really long leash to experiment and allow industry self-regulation and corporate self-regulation. Uh, the problem with that is, you know, you see things like what happened with Twitter recently, where Twitter had a, a decent set of standards and community guidelines and suddenly there's new management in town and that changes and there's an influx of the kind of content that they worked hard to eliminate. So yes, the people behind ChatGPT have been working hard to make it not become racist as we, we've seen previous examples of bots okay. trained entirely on free open internet source material right. and they very, very quickly became uh, offensive. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> <laughs> Much like the global internet. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yeah. the thing, you know, <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. Right. Exactly. And, and, right. and so they're working hard, but but it is not a legally mandated regime at this point. And, you know, while there's efforts in other areas like privacy and data security where they have put forward legislation that hasn't been put in effect yet, this is too new. And it's some of that flexibility that Kendra and I were talking about earlier with China where they're able to sort of try and get out ahead of the problems, even if they get it wrong, you know, they can walk it back a little later, uh, more quickly and more easily, uh, as opposed to the democratic process for all its uh, many virtues. Sometimes our bipartisan system leads to real slow rulemaking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just to, just to underscore the point a thousand times over, the United States still does not have an effective data privacy regulation, right. guys. Not yeah. really. <laughs> not for consumer no. protections. No, like we are not. so behind. It's outrageous. It's out at this point. It's outrageous, right? It's uh, well past time, right? The U.S. consumers, you know, ha have some federally mandated, you know, data privacy, and we just haven't been able to sort that out yet. So, comparing Chinese regulations to what's going on in the United States is frankly embarrassing. Comparing Chinese regulations to what's going on in the EU is a little bit more... Slightly less embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, slightly less embarrassing, so. <laughs> yeah, so that's where we are. Um, you know, in the deep synthesis regulations, like Kendra suggested that, you know, the shorthand way of understanding them is that they were about deep fakes and the worries about, about that. Um, the solution seems to be both in, in that set of regs and in this new uh, proposed set of regs is to tag everything, to label everything, anything that's created using, you know, uh, generative AI is, I mean, this is, you know, clearly one of the pitfalls of, of the early trials of LLMs. Um, but 
is this enough? Is this is this even remotely sufficient, just to uh, to label everything that's created using a generative AI program as such? Is that even workable? Uh, so, <laughs> as Jeremy can probably tell you better than I can, the stipulation to label content generated by a machine came from the deep synthesis the right. previous iter- you know i won't i don't want to call it a previous iter- iteration it's a separate it's a separate policy or a separate it regulation. stayed in it stayed in this set of regs too right but it stayed in <laughs> this set of regulations right and what they were again trying to do there is enforce traceability again you can see what they were thinking in the spirit of the regulation right let's say you put out a video and it's been modified by ai there should be some kind of label on it that says machine generated or you know if it's an audio file that should include some kind of label or maybe in the in the audio itself you know that's been generated by machine they just seem to be transparent and inform people that you know they're not reading human generated content right and so that has carried forward into this regulation now on on ai generated content but i'm not I think that's one example of something that's, you know, it's a nice statement of purpose, but I'm not 100% sure how that's enforceable because, for example, you ask, you know, a chatbot a question, it spits out an answer, even if that, you know, even if that answer comes with a text-based label that says this was generated by a machine, you copy-paste that out of the interface and, okay, like, you yep. copy-paste it's out of the interface, <laughs> is gone. So I'm not really sure, you know, I'm not really sure that that is as effective here. What I will be interested to see is how China's usually what happens in cases like this is that we see regulation via enforcement or implementation. What I mean by that is that you've got companies start to roll out generative AIs. They attempt to comply with this kind of vague notice and then regulators in the CEC or somebody comes in and says, no, you have to do it this way. You have to do it that way after internal discussion. And maybe that rule gets ratified or clarified later. Maybe it doesn't. I, yeah. I think it's kind of where we're at. <laughs> so uh, there's actually two different labeling requirements. And it's worth noting that because I think they serve different functions. Mm-hmm. One of them, the one we've been discussing is a visible label, which is right. clearly for public facing information that's meant to alert people who are viewing it who probably didn't use the tool to create it themselves, that they're looking at something that was machine-generated, may not be an actual photograph, uh, may, right. you know, is machine-generated text, et cetera. The other is, is what I call the technical labeling uh, requirement, which is not necessarily a visible thing, but is some kind of mark that could be in the, in the code behind the image uh, or, or text, which is uh, to allow traceability primarily to make I it see. so that we can find out what tool generated this information. And, and that most users wouldn't have access to that, but it's a part of the record keeping system that the creators of these tools have to have in place. Um, there are requirements, you know, uh, in addressing some of these concerns of how enforcement will work, that removing the tags or concealing them or minimizing them it is forbidden. Uh, and how that will be enforced and who it will be enforced against um, you know, if I retweet something that was tweeted by Kendra that was built, copied and pasted from AI, you know, am I going to be liable for removing a tag if I never knew it was there? Um, we'll have to see. And they're going to have to feel that out as they move forward. But I do think that requiring labeling sends a message uh, that, right. that you have to make this, you have to notify your audience when you're using AI generated information. And that principle is there. We'll see how well the actual tagging does, but it's only a first step and yeah, only yeah. a first step in dealing with the misinformation issue. Can I actually also underscore, like go a little bit down a sm- small brief rabbit hole there, because I think there's a really interesting point about the traceability of, of content. So something that's very interesting that you're that about Chinese internet regulation in general is that it functions on a couple of core principles. One of those core principles is no anonymity. No, uh, uh, according to Chinese regulators, ideally, nobody who accesses the internet, no content that is generated on the Chinese internet should be unattached to a responsible party in some way. Right. And that goes all the way back to things like, you know, every website that has user registrations, you're required to register with your phone number that is attached to your ID, right? When you get a phone, you have to show your your national ID. 
you get the phone number right. and therefore it is a real name registration requirement on that right um it they extended interestingly they extended those kind of regulations to smart cars every smart car on an internet of vehicles network is required to have a chip in it that's registered to the owner of the car and that has to be identified on the network right even a car on the network is identified users on the right. network have to be identified and so this kind of you know, as as Jeremy called it, the technical labeling requirement, this idea that content generated by an AI has to be traceable back to the original platform that it was issued by is kind of in the same vein, right? You can't have content floating around that was generated, you know, was created by a specific party, and then it is impossible to trace that content back to the source from, from whence it came, right? And so, you know, I think regulators are going to struggle now to do that. As Jeremy said, there's now all these technical concerns. You know, it's easy to do that with a SIM card. It's easy to do that with hardware, right? It's easier to do that with a with a single user account. It's much more difficult to to track and trace back content generated by a machine. We've been trying to track and trace back content generated by humans and online behavior perpetrated by humans, right? And now, you know, we're trying we're trying to 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 trace back non-human content generation. I mean, this is a bit of a new frontier. Yeah, yeah. And it's obviously going to place of a burden on the, the developers of these generative AI platforms. Uh, one of a number of things that will prove to be burdensome, but, you know, the, the really big one, of course, is, I mean, I, I guess to nobody's surprise, and I think it's not inappropriate either, the, the, the focus has been on, on censorship. You know, when people hear that China has this new set of, of rules around generative AI, People, I think, immediately go to, well, this is certainly about you know, controlling the flow of information. After all, you know, they blocked ChatGPT and BARD and all the other major LLMs right away, right off the door. So uh, to what extent is this motivated by, you know, by this desire to censor? And, and to what extent is it, you know, the same kind of generic concerns over AI ethics and governance that we're all worried about here? I mean, I guess there's no way to break it out, but it's both, right? I mean... It's not just one or the other, Jeremy. But before we even go there, I have to say that the anonymity discussion, which is a really important one, because it links back to what Kendra was saying at the beginning of our conversation about a different notion of privacy. Um, clearly, what the Chinese government has done with technology regulation is akin to what they've tried to do with surveillance cameras uh, in physical spaces. It's not that you're constantly being watched at all times. It's that there's a record of what happened in every place. So when a problem gets reported that has to be resolved in order to maintain that all-important social stability, they can find the record and go back to it. Kendra was talking about how privacy uh, in the EU and US model is often about limiting government powers. In China, it's often about the government being your protector of your privacy. So the government has access to this information. It's other users, corporate or individuals who don't have it. And with real name systems, that's very much the case where the general rule is that you must register your real name to get a phone, to log into an account on a website, but usually upfront, you're allowed to use whatever you want. So other users right. can see whatever alias I choose but there has to be a record connecting that alias that I chose to my account back to my real name registration. Um, now, to answer the question you you actually asked, uh, Kaiser, you, you know, yes, censorship is part of it, but, but but I think the better way to view it is to view it as China is trying to import all of its data regime and existing laws onto the new technology. The Jello mm -hmm. is slipping off the nail again. We got to put an, another nail or put the nail in a new place. But it's the same <laughs> principles going through. Um, and they're global. A lot of the concerns are global when it comes to this AI type stuff. Um, I broke it down in my overview into censorship and content controls, prevention of discrimination, intellectual property rights, curbing misinformation, and privacy and data protection. And, yeah. you know, the censorship concern obviously takes a unique form in China. Uh, where they have a notoriously expansive censorship regime. But the other concerns are, you know, things that we're all sort of trying to deal with. Yeah, and I've got right in front of me the actual text, right? I mean, I think this probably leads yeah, into what, what, <laughs> what you want to talk about there. Um, Shall we read it together? Yeah, let's read it together. <laughs> Article 4. Let, exactly. Content generated <laughs> using... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially what it says about 
training data for AIs, right? So whatever data that you feed the AI, first of all, right, has to comply with essentially existing requirements, right? It also can't infringe on intellectual property rights. If you're using somebody's personal information, you have to get the consent of the, the person whose personal information you're using, right? And this is the kicker. This is the thing that everybody's been chit-chatting about uh, is number four here, is fourth requirement right. for training data. The, tra the, the person training the machine or the entity training the machine must be able to guarantee the authenticity, accuracy, objectivity, and diversity of the data. That speaks to many of the big concerns that have been raised about ChatGPT and OpenAI, right? Where are you getting all this stuff? How do you know? Why is, you know, ChatGPT generating false information very confidently, right? Why, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. how do we know that the, the data that it's been trained on is, is accurate? But, right, the opposite side of that question is, how much does this particular stipulation kill innovation because what you're essentially saying that's is right. that authenticity, accuracy, and objectivity, it, it, if that's the requirement, you cannot train an AI on the entirety of the internet because it's full of inaccurate, inauthentic, and, you know, unobjective information, right? So- Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, walk me through how this is supposed to work. I mean, it seems like a huge, it is a huge burden to the actual developers. I and mean, they have to ensure this is being trained on accurate and uh, diverse information. Yeah, look, it's it's gotta be politically and socially kosher as well. I mean, just yep. to, to boot. We're talking about oceanic volumes of text, even if it's drawn from servers that are within China and supposedly already you know, pre-cleaned and pre-screened and doesn't contain data that's inviolate. We know that's not possible. We know that's there's always gonna be problems with the underlying data. So, you know, in the case of US developed LLMs and other generative AI systems here in the West, you know, what you do is you have this human feedback or RLHF, right? Reinforced learning through human feedback, right? And you're supposed to, you know, weed out the 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 vulgar, the anti-Semitic and the, you know, the sexist and the racist stuff. But, you know, I mean, I've I, it seems to be working. At least I, I looked at the, you know, I played with ChatGPT 3, 3.5, now 4. 4 is a lot better. Uh, I mean, this this whole human feedback thing seems to be working. Wouldn't it be pretty much the same for China? I mean, can, can't they just sort of apply stricter parameters and limitations but arrive at the same kind of... I mean, it's burdensome, sure, but look, it's only been a couple of months and ChatGPT, you know, OpenAI was able to, to do a lot better job. I think the question you're dealing with there is whether or not regulators will give companies and and the general public the leeway to make mistakes in public as these, you know, problems get sorted uh, out, yeah. right? Because, well, I mean, backing up a step, right? I mean, I, I think it's really worth spending some time on this issue of the accuracy, authenticity, objectivity, and diversity of the training data, right? I mean, essentially, and again, I'm wildly simplifying here, but basically what ChatGPT did was feed its machine the internet and say, hey, why don't you chew on this? <laughs> and so th this stipulation makes that impossible. So when you get companies you know, Tsinghua University or these these other companies that are saying, oh, we trained our models similarly to ChatGPT, really using what data? Is that accurate and authentic? Also, what does authenticity mean? Who gets to decide right. what's authentic? Who gets to decide what's accurate? Who gets to decide what's objective? I'm not sure. I mean, Jeremy, are there legal definitions for those things? I don't think so, right? No, of course well, not. Well, it's what the party says. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's not even that simple, um, right? I mean, I gave the example in the overview of if you feed it a work of fiction or a uh, fictional piece of art, you know, like I use the example of an old Greco of a, a unicorn. Sure. Clearly that content is false and that unicorns don't exist. <laughs> uh, but it's accurate in that it's an accurate reproduction of that Greco by a famous <laughs> artist. Um, so so it's it's not just a question of, of misinformation. They, they've, they've gone too far. And I would argue that the other data source requirements beyond even this this sexier one of false and accurate you know requiring right. accurate and verifiable information are also really problematic including the ip one yeah at first glance it looks like you can't use any copyrighted works at all in your training data right which 
the copyright isn't always that pat. Uh, it might not be clear who the copyright holder is or if there is one or what rights they're claiming in something. But beyond that, they've defined it in sort of a circular way where they're saying you can't use data that is infringing on copyright. Well, the whole question is, is it infringing on copyright for this use? Copyrights aren't absolute rights. They protect certain reproduction rights and, and things, but sure. they have what we usually call fair use exceptions. And the question, the whole issue with AI is, is this fair use to use it as training data? And it probably depends on what kind of output I use based on it, how far afield it is, whether I'm creating a product that actually competes with the original author's content and things like this. But they've defined it in a circular way where they say, well, you can't use it data that infringes on someone's copyright, but they that's circular because we don't know what infringes on somebody's copyright yet. Personal information, we have the personal information protection law, which creates a robust regime about protecting mainly identifying information and especially biometric information and what they call sensitive personal information. Mm -hmm. That's information that if leaked or used improperly would lead to discrimination or disadvantage of the of the subject of it. But is all of that going to require consent? You know, if it was a random photo of person, you know, a street scene with someone in the background, which is allowed under the personal information protection law, you know, where, where are the lines going to be drawn in there? Um, so, so yes, there's an unworkable standard in the false information, but I think even the IP protections cause problems as well as the personal information. There is a nod towards human checking where all of these platform creators are responsible for having their rules and records of human tagging of data and human review of information, but that will only go so far. I think the, the, the result of all that, right? I mean, so a lot of the conversation I've been having with other people in the data policy space is that the likely result of all of that, at least in the short term, is that you get generative AI used for discrete enterprise applications, right, in the in, in the medium term. So what I mean by that is, okay, well, I'm an auto company and I'm an auto manufacturer. I know I own all the data, right, all the customer data that I've collected. Uh, I've anonymized it according to the rules. It's not a big confusing data set of pictures and text and, you know, web scraping I got from God knows where and all this kind of stuff. I'm very confident that this is my corporate data. I have a discrete use case for it. That discrete use case can be verified by regulators clearly, right? If I go to regulators and ask them to to, to verify the security of this, this is a narrow scope. So I think there's, and again, I just want to remind everybody, this is a draft regulation, right? The most interesting right. part of this is going to be, you know, as Jeremy said, it's unworkable. You cannot have, you will not be able to, you know, Chinese companies will not be able to legally compete with foreign companies who are using massive data sets without these restrictions, given this restriction. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think what we're going to see now, right, is, is pushback from those companies as they send in their complaints to the, to the, the CAC and the, the releasers of this draft and say, you guys are going to kill us on this and there'll be a discussion. And so it, it'll be fascinating to see what the final version looks like. Because when you compare the final version and the draft, you can usually, in some cases, read between the lines and go, oh, I can see what everybody complained about, right? I can see what the right, problem right, right. probably was here. You know, I think that that will, will likely be the case, but enterprise applications with a narrower scope may end up being the outcome, depending on what the final version of this is. Yeah, this this is exactly what, what Rohir Creamer is actually uh, of Leiden University, what he argued uh, in that, that uh, DigiChina roundtable. He said that uh, Chinese services, you know, subject is there going to be the political censorship, um, might be able to emerge within a different industrial policy landscape, one I'm quoting here, uh, which sees the future of these technologies as being closely intertwined with existing products and services. Baidu has announced partnerships for Ernie with household goods and car manufacturers. Yeah. This means these services will likely evolve in a more delineated, task-specific manner. People usually don't ask their toaster for relationship advice or political opinions. It's uh, sure great, but this seems like gigantic overkill. You don't need, you know, a, a, a trillion node neural network to create, you know, out of a small, a really finite uh, data set. It's the set of very, you know, task specific functions. I, I, I feel like you don't need to. to, to it's using a shotgun to kill a fly. 
I mean, it's insane. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be a little bit of a devil's advocate, and I, I think that you're going to continue to see content generated by AI throughout China's uh, social media landscape. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, the people want it as a practical matter. It's going to be hard to limit access to foreign tools and illegitimate tools. But most importantly, as with all of China's content regulations, they're qualified. China's content regulations are qualified to make it so that it's disturbances that are the problem, not the content itself. Um, And what they're looking for, as we saw even back in 2013, which a decade ago, it's gone so fast, but uh, they put out uh, network regulations about stopping online rumors which expanded for sort of street crimes to cover online activity, including the the notorious uh, pick and quarrels offense. They defined the internet as sure. a public venue that you could cause a disturbance in uh, for the pick and quarrels. Of, and what they qualify it with is that it has to lead to either an embarrassment of the nation internationally, a harm to social stability, a great disruption in social order. And this is what they can do. The content will be out there and it will it'll be enforced against situations that cause a real problem. And inevitably, that will also have a chilling effect on people who are spreading information uh, benignly, uh, which is the, the nature of all of China's speech regulation, is, th- is that by keeping that shotgun ready, uh, it keeps the activity down, but it doesn't totally stifle it. Mm-hmm. So Paul Triolo raised another issue uh, in his piece about, you know, another thing that might really slow down the development of of generative AI in China. And that is, of course, these export restrictions. Higher-end GPUs from companies like NVIDIA, uh, GPUs, graphic processing units are what most deep learning systems, these huge neural nets are actually are built on. Um, Huawei and Baidu, as he points out in this piece, have their own neural processing units, these NPUs, these dedicated AI chips. But at least in the case of Huawei, they can't get them anymore because they were being manufactured at TSMC. So Kendra, what is your take on this? What, what's the extent to which these export restrictions are going to hobble China's efforts in generative AI, if at all? Well, being perfectly transparent, I think the entire policy community is scrambling around to put a number or a timeline on exactly what that means for China, right? Right. Um, I think that there's two issues here that often get confused. Mm -hmm. Issue number one is whether or not the export controls will stymie China's ability to manufacture advanced semiconductors domestically, right? Mm-hmm. Issue number two is whether or not a lack of access to advanced semiconductors will materially damage China's AI ambitions. Those are two separate questions. In terms okay. of question one, I think absolutely, right? I think yeah. you're already seeing that. The the semiconductor industry, you've done a podcast on this, <laughs> very good one, right? Semiconductor industry in China is in a bit of a panic right now, right? There's a, a you know, material and and very valid concerns that a lack of access to advanced manufacturing equipment and chips is going to cause a problem, et cetera. We'll set that aside, uh, maybe come back to it on another podcast. Um, But in terms of AI, right, there's this huge open question about how much processing power do you need domestically to to train these models and how many of these models do you need, right? And right now, uh, you know, in the in the near term, and again, these are all just points for consideration. I don't have a solid conclusion here, but in the near term, here's what you're looking at. One, the the chips that currently are available domestically. So we've seen a lot of moves for those companies and a lot of reporting on the fact that those companies that currently cannot actually buy the chips themselves are renting server space, right, at cloud centers to run their models. And there's no rules in the export controls that say you can't rent out use of these chips to XX company or XX server. So there's a bunch of loopholes. And we've also heard reports from, I think, FT that there's purchasing of chips through subsidiary companies. There's holes in all export controls, right? Um, And so for the time being, that's not a sustainable situation, right? That's not a sustainable situation. For the time being, that's buying some time, right, is really what's going on there. The other, the other uh, interesting thing to note, here's something that never gets talked about. And again, maybe we should, we should spend some time on this uh, elsewhere. But there's a huge national initiative right now called the National Unified Computing Power Network. 
Mm-hmm. And basically what's going on is that uh, the central government is trying to create basically what's an electrical grid of data centers and supercomputing centers. Wow. Where eight major hubs uh, across the country that, um, and by hub, I mean a location that has a, a cluster of data centers located there, those data centers being run by different companies, are sure. interconnected by high-speed fiber optic. And then an AI-based platform is installed to take requests for data processing, particularly AI training, from companies and push them to data centers that have that are underutilized or can capacity, handle the load, yeah, have yeah. capacity to handle that load. Right. And and one of the reasons that they're doing that is because long story, but there's a lack of data processing capacity in the east and east and that's where all the, you know, along the eastern seaboard is where all the big tech cities are. That's where all the data processing mm-hmm. requirements are. That data or those, you know, data centers are are powered by coal, right? And that's dirty energy. Mm-hmm. And they're overburdened where you've also got data centers out west that are powered by renewable energy and they're not being used because there's no big tech cities out there, basically. Right, right, right. So they thought, okay, we're going to hook all these. So there's a question about now this project is in its infancy, but there's a, a real question here about whether or not pooled compute will also buy China some time. Right. This is all about buying yeah. time. Right? This is all about buying time because eventually what you end up with is such a large gap between what China has access to, you know, the chips that China has access to and the bleeding edge, right, that now you you start to see a competitive disadvantage. It's very hard to quantify how long that is. And it's also, you know, because it could go, there could be a huge breakthrough in, in, you know, semiconductor technology or, you know, chip architecture or, you know, chip materials that changes the game, right? right? And so the question is, does the game change and does China develop its domestic industry to the point, you know, buy itself enough time to to kind of, you know, make up the gap? Right now, they're in pretty dire straits. And, the, and, and frankly, the local policy conversation is we're in trouble, right? The newer chips, even one generation newer uh, of NVIDIA's chips that are significantly faster and more energy intensive than the generation that China has access to now. Significantly, yeah, yeah, yeah. so there's going that gap will will widen year by year, and so the question then is, you know, what what are we going to see here, right? What are we going to see the, as the response, and how actually damaging is it? How much power does an AI need, right? How many models do you need to be competitive domestically? Three, five, fifty, a zillion, right? What do you mean competitive? <laughs> You know, so there's a, there's a lot of open questions there and a lot of kind of uh, moving parts, but I th- I don't think it's as simple as China doesn't get chips anymore. Boohoo, they lose. Watch this space. Uh, just a a quick statement to uh, also sort of bring us back to AI regs. What Kendra's talking about illustrates also something of the complete structure of the regulatory and policy framework. That while we get things like these new draft AI regs, which are really a band-aid, these are something that are put out to, you know, p- plug a leak in the dike or another nail to hold the jello to the wall. Um, you know, th- these aren't a grand policy scheme. These are just something to deal with an issue that's emerging and do it quickly. But we also have these long-term policies and plans that include things like pooled sure. computing that Kendra's mentioning. Uh, creation of a data market where where there's a controlled ability to sell and, and exchange in data, uh, identifying specific locations for that. And it's very easy for foreign governments and media alike to treat it all sort of as equal and to seize on whatever the latest, newest thing is, as opposed to seeing the difference between this grand infrastructure and policy development plans versus these patchwork regs that come out occasionally to address an immediate problem. Um, The draft AI regs are important, absolutely. And they tell us a lot about what challenges China sees in terms of generative AI. But we also have to keep an eye on this bigger plan. And they're able to, you know, do both of these things at once. And that's ultimately why I asked the two of you to join me, is that because I knew that you'd be able to step back and see the shape of the forest see the sort of bigger picture and, and, and not just zoom in on these individual, incomplete, ad hoc sort, sorts of, of individual sets of regulations. So uh, thank you so much. This is incredibly valuable. And uh, 
I, I just I love I love listening to you guys talk, uh, and I will have you both back on really soon. But let's move on to recommendations. Um, before we do that, let me just offer a quick reminder that if you like the work that we're doing here with the Syndica Podcast and the other shows in the network, please support us by becoming an Access member. Uh, just that subscription is the way that we keep the lights on here. So uh, we we depend entirely on that. You may have noticed we've stopped running those stupid ads on, on the beginning of the podcast. Uh, they weren't doing anything for you. They weren't doing much for me. So, hey, they're gone. Uh, but so, you know, all the more reason to become a subscriber. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. I know I've got a couple of good ones, but Kendra, why don't you go first? What you got for us? Sure, I'm gonna recommend a big fat downer. Um, it's a it's a, it's a oh. wonderful <laughs> it's a wonderful book called uh, Red Cobalt: How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Um, it's by uh, it's by an amazing journalist named Siddharth Kara, and it really tracks back to you know um, it kind of tackles claims that you know, there is any such thing as clean cobalt in the supply chain and kind of some of the the institutionalized slavery in the Congo that is essentially powering the phones and devices that we use every day. And it's really a conversation that hasn't gotten enough media attention as far as I'm concerned. So definitely check it out. Yeah. I don't know if you heard our interview with Henry Sanderson, who wrote uh, Vault Rush, but he talks quite a bit about about the the, the problematic nature of cobalt in, in the Congo. I mean, you basically have a choice between working with this guy who's basically been, he's he has a uh, gold, global Magnitsky, you know, sanction against him, a real bad actor, um, or, you know, Chinese who are buying from these artisanal mines and, yeah. and you know, pulling this stuff. It's just, it's just, it's pretty awful everywhere you look. In, in the, but yeah, it's, it sounds like a great recommendation. I'll, I'll uh, a downer, yeah, to be <laughs> sure, but I, I definitely want to check that out. Okay, Jeremy, what do you have for us? I feel bad. I've also got a downer. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was going to recommend. Okay, don't worry. I, I've got I've got uppers. Oh, thank God. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to recommend the, the the last book I read in a while ago, but it was the last book that really made me want to tell people about it and get other people to read, which is the school for, uh, a work of fiction, the School for Good Mothers by uh, Jessamine Chan. Um, I, I liked it because it really addresses some of the emotional uh, as well as practical complexities in child welfare systems through a work of science fiction, getting at them in a way that you know any level of analysis will never get to, while at the same time really heartbreakingly looking at what it means to be both a kid and a parent. <laughs> It sounds joyous. Sounds okay. like Sunday morning reading. <laughs> it's a really great book. <laughs> with with a surprise China connection too. So you know they. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm I'm gonna offer two recommendations, two pretty quick ones. One is uh, a book that I, I recommended a book by Peter Frankopan a couple of weeks ago, uh, Silk Roads: a, a New History of the World. I'm going to recommend another now. I'm about a third of the way through it, but it's just great. It's his brand new book. It just came out. It's called The Earth Transformed, An Untold History, uh, which I bought actually as an audio book. Franco Pan reads it himself. He's got a very nice reading voice. Though the content of the book is kind of, it's the stuff that I just love. It's its very current on all the science of, of sort of um, stretching back, you know, billions of years, literally billions of years, uh, the whole natural history of the earth. Uh, he presents quite cautiously and, and amply caveated uh, the case for uh, climate as a major factor in, in historical events from, you know, incursions of steppe nomads to the collapse of civilizations. I mean, medieval warm periods and, you know, um, mini ice ages and things like that, but just, just correlating all this data and from all over the place, from all these different disciplines that seem to show uh climatological and you know some cases meteorological uh, data and how it affects major world events so I'm totally digging it it's okay maybe I, I've sold it as an opera it's not an opera it's a good book it, it, the, 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 the lessons aren't so, so cheery nobody listened to us okay nobody listened to us <laughs> <laughs> but it's good okay I also wanted to do another recommendation just this morning I saw I wanted to say farewell to Harry Belafonte whose music uh, was just the soundtrack to so much of my childhood. Uh, my dad had this old reel-to-reel, uh, and he had all the, the the Harry Belafonte recordings from Carnegie Hall. There's two 
like double live albums from Carnegie Hall, which are just amazing. I, I know that the, those songs, I mean, I know them super well. I can sing them all the time. Um, my, my siblings and I, I'm always sort of like leaving little voice messages where I'll sing a Harry Belafonte <laughs> snatch at, at them just, just for fun. Um, and, you know, my mom had this gigantic crush on him, but my dad would, would get all teary when he'd hear certain songs. And so it just reminds me of them so much. Um, and, of course, he was just a great American. He had just such amazing contributions to the whole civil rights struggle. Uh, so he was a big hero to my folks, a big hero to me. So rest in power, Harry Belafonte. And uh, thank you, guys. Kendra, what a, what a delight to have you on the show finally. So fun to be here. Yeah, well, we're going to do it again. And Jeremy, yeah, what a pleasure as always. Thank you, guys. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at the China Project. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.